Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. My guest for today's episode is Melanie Siebert, and here she is to introduce herself. Well, my name is Melanie Siebert. I live on Wasanich and Lekwungen territories in Victoria, BC, and I'm a youth and family counselor here in Victoria. I asked Melanie if she could be the character from any book, poem, etc., who she would be and why. And I loved the answer Melanie gave because it once again pushed the boundaries of this question. Here's her answer. I'd love to be so many different characters. <laughs> wow. Okay. I just have to go with what I'm actually thinking, which is in Tim Lilburn's poetry to the river, like the person who just goes to the river and has that as their um, spiritual retreat. I think just that sense of like communion and beauty and like being taken in by a place that I love. I don't know. I just, I just go to the, that, that poetry for refuge. And so, yeah, I just imagined doing that actually in an embodied way, being that speaker. Melanie's book, Heads Up, Changing Minds on Mental Health was a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Melanie starts our conversation with a reading from the book. Renny Linklater is animated as she tells me about helping a friend make bear grease last summer. They took 60 pounds of bear fat after the meat and fur had been removed and boiled it down, strained it, and put it in jars. It's really, really strong medicine, Renny says. In Anishinaabe culture, the bear is one of our healers. Rennie is a member of the Rainy River First Nations in northwestern Ontario. She's also the director of Skabe Makwa at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, a large psychiatric hospital based in Toronto and one of the world's leading mental health research centres. Rennie draws from her Anishinaabe perspective to explain that culture is the foundation for wellness. Culture grows out of the land, language, traditions, and the history of our people. Ceremonies and cultural practices help to create balance in a person's mind, body, heart, and spirit, she says. Rennie dreams of bears, black bears, grizzly bears, white bears. This is a connection with healing spirits. I understand that it's my destiny to heal, she says, but it takes a lot of work. Rennie pays close attention to her dreams. They are guides. A few years ago, she had a dream of a little baby who is lost and who no one is looking for. In the dream, she felt frantic and stressed. Later that morning, it dawned on her. Oh, it's me. I'm the baby, she thought. I'm the baby who's out in the world and nobody is looking for me. She realized that she needed to do this work of finding and taking care of herself. Rennie sees trauma as an injury that happens to a person's spirit. 
Rennie herself has experienced many such injuries. At four months old, she was taken from her mother by the Children's Aid Society, placed in foster care, and then adopted by a white family. This was part of the 60s scoop. Like many indigenous children of this time, two generations of Rennie's family had already attended Indian residential school. For Rennie, growing up in a white family without connections to her indigenous culture was confusing and painful. Although she reconnected with her indigenous family and community decades ago, the pain of the loss continues to surface in various ways. Over the course of her life, Rennie says she has had two major breakdowns where she felt like she was falling to pieces. Her healing involved sorting through these pieces, making decisions about how to pull herself back together while leaving behind the painful pieces she no longer needed to carry. She reminds me it can be helpful to think of these times as breakthroughs rather than breakdowns. In order to heal, she says, she needed to connect with those difficult memories and emotions. During these breakthroughs, Rennie says she experienced terrifying emotions and suicidal thoughts. At times, she was able to see the spirit world and parallel realities. She believes that she, if that if she had been assessed by a psychiatrist, she would likely have been diagnosed with a number of DSM mental disorders and perhaps hospitalized. Instead, she turned to Anishinaabe healers and ceremonies. A lot of my work was about getting back myself back into my body because I was very dissociated, Rennie says. While the term dissociation comes from mainstream psychology, Rennie remembers first learning about it from an Anishinaabe elder who described how when someone gets really afraid, the spirit leaves the body. She sees dissociation as a protective response. Numbness and disconnection can be a way to survive. And yet when people have the support to go into the pain, whether support from family and community, from cultural ceremonies or from doctors and counselors, the possibility of healing can open up. Rennie remembers a sweat lodge ceremony where a bear spirit came to help her. When it was her turn to speak, she felt the bear push her forward and she collapsed on the cedar covering the ground and began wailing. She says she could feel the medicine. It helped her go into that place of pain so she could heal it. I'm wondering if we can start with kind of, I guess, the origin story of this project and how you started working on Heads Up. Well, growing up, I didn't know much about mental health. We never even used those words in my family or in the town or the community where I grew up. Um, when I was in high school, my best friend was suicidal. I had no clue what to do. Yeah, then, you know, different people who I loved were struggling. Someone in my life started thinking the government was stealing their thoughts, and I had no idea what was happening. Uh, then I started working as an EMT and on ambulance calls, like we picked people up and um, who were really struggling. Yeah, and I I really hadn't been trained or I just didn't understand what was really going on beneath the surface. And then even in my own life, you know, I have struggled with depression through the years. And 
I didn't really understand what that was or how, how I could get help um, for that. So, you know, my life has kind of been in this gradual process of just learning about these things and um, in ways, you know, just here and there. And then finally I decided to go back to school and actually become a counselor. And so that led to me working with youth in my work with youth. I just, felt like there wasn't something out there that was like kind of just a good comprehensive introduction to mental health and to the really different perspectives about it. And so I wanted to write that. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the books that may be on this topic are for parents of teens, not teens themselves. So was that something you were, you were paying attention to as you were writing the book? Yeah, I really wanted the stories to speak to the kind of kids I work with. You know, I wanted them to be honest and gritty and real. I wanted to show that, you know, sometimes there's no easy fix, that it's an ongoing process when you're dealing with mental health struggles sometimes. And I wanted to show the complicated history of treating mental health and how some of those kind of prejudices and ideas still live with us. Also, I really wanted to write something that talked about trauma and talked about like the impacts of colonization and racism and homophobia and transphobia and poverty and all those forms of discrimination and inequality because I think oftentimes the mainstream narratives about mental health are very um, very individualizing and very medicalized and um, I wanted to write something where youth could see themselves and also see that oh like it's this whole big world that we live in that can really have a massive impact on our wellness And mental health is so much more than just a person's individual story, but also just the world we create for each other. Yeah, I was I was noticing that as I was reading the book, because, I mean, early on, you talk about this whole thing that for so long we've thought of mental illness and mental health as being in our head. But as we've as you show in the book and as you just mentioned, like we're more and more learning that it's not necessarily all in our head. It's so much what's outside of us and what we experience as well. But one of the things that I was thinking about was just how maybe because we are moving forward, hopefully in these conversations, we are able to have conversations about trauma and abuse and intergenerational trauma and and what our different experiences, how those impact us. And I guess my my question is, I would imagine it was probably easier, like even 15 years ago to write a book like this, because we didn't have, we weren't having the conversations we're having now. And I wondered if you, if you felt that was a challenge to be as open to all these different experiences and to acknowledge all these different things and to also give them justice and to make sure they have the right voices, because it, there is so much now that we need to consider that we weren't considering 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really important to me. I wanted to write a book that was inclusive of many perspectives. And yeah, that was difficult. I mean, it was difficult to get it into a book this size. I felt like I could have 
the book could have easily been double this size, but I wanted to make it accessible. So we had to slim it down in some ways. Yeah, one of the ways that I tried to make it more inclusive was just by telling a bunch of personal stories like Rennie's story so that there's general ideas in the book, but then the personal stories are kind of what make it come alive. And in each person's story, you can see how each person doesn't really fit into just a box or of diagnosis or identity even, or just like of a kind of trajectory of mental health struggle or healing. Each person's story, you know, is unique and full of uh, individual struggles and idiosyncrasies. Yeah. So by sprinkling those throughout, I hope to give that sense of just the broad range of um, perspectives. Like for instance, Sean shared with me a story about just like his growing up on the streets and the racism that he had to deal with and the how he was re-traumatized when he was working with youth in the courts and seeing black youth being um, targeted and how that sent him into his own tailspin and experiences of psychosis which then he was criminalized for instead of getting the treatment that he needed so that's just like one example of a really complex story that that weaves together how you know these many different threads and then I also wanted to be sure there was a lot of Indigenous perspectives in the book. So I interviewed Rani and included her story. And I interviewed a Métis art therapist and included her story. But then also I just included like the actual voices of a whole bunch of different youth, like just saying their own little piece about what their journey has been like and what's helped them. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the stories. How how did you go about finding those those people to include? Because I know you mentioned in the introduction that you wish you could have included some of the the voices of the people you work with, but of course, there's confidentiality uh, with that. And so, um, how did you make those contacts? And were they people you already knew or that you met for the first time through this project? Most of them were people that I met through this project. Yeah, most of my friends and family didn't want to be included, (laughs) you know, for various reasons. But I think that, yeah, I was looking for people who, you know, had had different types of experiences and had different understandings of mental health. And then who were also at a place where they really wanted to share their story and that felt good to them and empowering and that they were able to, you know, dig into it and share some of the difficult stuff. Um, And so that it was a real kind of honest portrait and not just kind of glossing over things. Yeah. So I just hunted around and (laughs) sometimes I, contacted various organizations or I just you know heard of people through friends or um, other people who work in the field yeah and I just collected I did more interviews than are actually in the book of course Um, but the ones that I included in the book were the ones that the people were just so generous and honest and open and um, articulate about um, their experiences. Yeah. It's interesting, the story about Rennie, because it really contrasts the 
the information you include about the history of how we've seen uh, mental health and mental illness, but particularly the treatment of it, because I think we're now opening ourselves up to these different ways of understanding mental health and mental illness, but also treating mental health and mental illness. And I wondered if he wanted to speak to that part, the history, but also making sure we're including those other cultural practices and how we see treatment and wellness altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was really excited that Rennie agreed to be interviewed for this project because she's just an incredible person and um, is kind of really a, a leader in terms of uh, incorporating Indigenous ceremonies and understandings into a westernized um, mental health uh, facility like CAMH. Yeah, and she's been at the forefront of Shigabe uh, Makwa, which is an initiative that's just totally dedicated to improving healthcare for First Nation, Inuit, and Metis people. And they have a ceremony grounds right on the hospital grounds where they have a sweat lodge and a medicine garden and sacred fire burning. Yeah, they do ceremonies there. They've changed the ventilation actually in the hospital so that there's places where they can do smudging and ceremonies right in the hospital. And then she's working, um, you know, all around the province. There's a whole chapter on the history of um, treating mental health, and it goes right back to the early days of drilling holes in people's skulls (laughs) and letting the evil spirits out. Yeah, there's some pretty horrific stuff in there. You know, so much of those ideas do still kind of survive today, even when we say things like struggling with your demons or that kind of thing. And also just a lot of youth that I see before they get help, they're so scared to actually reach out because they just feel like it's going to mean that they're completely broken or like they're a bad person or just something's really wrong with them. So I think those those legacies really survive in mainstream culture. And also in the history chapter, like part of it talks about too, just like the ways racism was embedded in um, so many practices and ableism and just like, yeah, there's just been horrific stuff. So I think, you know, in mental health services right now this is all stuff we're still grappling with like how do mainstream services confront like the systemic ways that they still support racist practices and that kind of thing and I think there's there's a lot of amazing work being done anti-racist decolonizing work being done like recognizing racism actually as a health crisis um, that has such severe impacts on people's bodies and wellness. Um, Also bringing decolonization into mental health spaces like my team that I work with right now we're reading the 21 things about the Indian Act and we read a chapter of that to start out each one of our meetings and then also just like the way to like seeing how so many 
social issues, issues of social justice are important to mental health. And um, I think that's one area where we need to make tons of changes in our society. So yeah, yeah, those pieces are just starting. Yeah, it's interesting, even in some of the reading I've done for writing that I do is around like, how until not even that long ago the normal body when we talked about certain things was the white male body and so we're still any i mean and that still exists and so much mental health and physical health practices is that the normal body is the white male body and so how if if we're still using that lens to see people's wellness how 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 does anything outside of that fit in and i i still find that fascinating that that's the place we're in where we're still we're still confronting that mhm mhm yeah i mean i also did include some pieces like around mad pride and also you know alternative ways of thinking of phenomena like hearing voices and you know yeah that question of like what's normal is so alive in the realm of mental health and psychiatry and yeah there's a long history of pathologizing people for the various spectrums of human experience yeah so there's been a lot of damage done to people in the name of psychiatry and mental health and I think people still do experience traumatizing experiences when they come into some of the mental health services so I wanted to have that realism in the book but also also show like really amazing work that's being done that is empowering and um, isn't putting people in little boxes that are oppressive (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting what you were um saying about how kind of i mean the biggest hurdle for so many folks is opening up and sharing their experiences and there's a piece in there a fear it's stigma it's i think it's also the way that mental health and mental illness is portrayed in media and i think continues to be portrayed in media that we still don't have an accurate understanding or depiction of what living with mental illness looks like and that it may it doesn't have to be these extreme you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of examples that there are people who live with mental illness who live normal I'm putting in air quotes normal lives so I wondered your thoughts on on how especially for teens who are so saturated with media whether it's on their phones or um, tv how you think that is shifting or is it shifting in how those depictions impact how we see mental health and mental illness and also wellness as well? Mm-hmm. I think it is shifting. I mean, slowly, oftentimes like the various mental health campaigns are kind of mental health light in a, in a way, you know, but yeah, how is it changing? I mean, I still see kids really struggling to open up and to ask for help. And that idea that a bunch of the people who I interviewed the book expressed that idea that like, it was so scary for them to reach out for help. And they just thought, 
I think Asante said that he just thought if he reached out for help, that would just mean there was something terribly wrong with him and he was broken. Yeah. But I, I feel like in schools, there's starting to be more education about mental health. And I think we could really bolster that even more, especially at this time, you know, post pandemic, I think we have a real opportunity to shift the conversation and yeah, to really um, educate people and also to like, just expand this idea of what is wellness and how can we how can young people find that the other part i was because you mentioned your role as an emt and how you just felt ill prepared to work with folks who are um struggling with mental illness and other mental health uh, struggles but i'm wondering what you think we can do to help you know teachers for example who are now I, I know teachers at the high school here who are feeling like they're both counselor and teacher and, you know, everything in between. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, how do we help, how do we help people around youth uh, feel supported in supporting teens as they're going through this and to open up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so many teachers do such amazing work, just connecting with students one-on-one and just oftentimes the teachers are the ones who see when kids are really struggling. Right. I mean, I think it's a real societal um, shift that we need in terms of just seeing mental health as health, you know, in BC amalgamating. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say amalgamating those ministries I was going to say, but just like putting the funding into mental health that's needed so that services are accessible. And, you know, one thing that probably needs to shift is getting more services, particularly in schools. Like if young people can access mental health supports in places where they are already feeling connected, that just makes it so much more accessible than walking through some doors that are foreign and intimidating into a, I think there's some really good initiatives. Like for instance, here in BC, we have Foundry and there's um, a whole bunch of centers around the provinces that are like one-stop shop hubs for youth services where things like mental health services are integrated with primary care with, um, you know, sexual health clinic with um, recreational opportunities and fun artistic groups and housing and yeah, job, job coaching and that kind of thing. And it's like all in one space. And so a youth can start like wherever it is that makes sense to them, whatever thing, you know, someone might be really struggling with PTSD, but the thing they really want is a job, you know, and really need is a job. And that might be a starting place. And then like, okay, how can we support them in that job? And then maybe, well, let's get you connected to a doctor, you know, who can, um, or a counselor. Uh, So I think that's really exciting work, um, but we just, we need though that kind of thing all over the place. Uh, we have one foundry here in Victoria, but we could probably have five, you know? So yeah, there's a urgent crisis to fund um, mental health services. It can be hard to maintain a hopeful outlook. I mean, especially when, you think of like, yeah, we're dealing with the pandemic, we're dealing with 
you know, crisis in mental health, but then also in the climate crisis and a toxic drug supply crisis. Like it's pretty dire out there. I mean, I think the, the hope is really just in personal connection, finding meaning in connecting with the people that you love and ultimately that is such a healing thing to feel that you're in it together with people who care about you and who see you and that includes like just being with you in your pain you know sometimes I think we kind of one of the tricks um, is that as adults, especially when we see, you know, young people hurting, we kind of want to race in there and like fix it. <laughs> but sometimes when we try to fix it, that can feel really invalidating of the actual experiences and emotions that that person is going through. So I think one of the tricks is to calm one's own anxiety about fixing things. And being able to just um, kind of enter the dark cave where the person who is hurting is and just be with them in that darkness for a time until they're ready to like take your hand and try walking out of the cave. It takes some real calming of one's own anxiety, I think, to just be able to be with the pain and the difficulty. But that sort of deep felt embodied connection um, can make all the difference. Yeah. And you even point to that in in your introduction where you mentioned when you were able to open up about your own experiences, how you found you know, you weren't alone. And I think that's, that, I've heard that from other folks too, who, who comment about, you know, once you get over the hurdle and you are able to open up, you often find a lot of people on the other side who, who've been through similar things and who can share uh, their own experiences so that you don't feel alone in all of it. Yeah. And shame really lives in secrecy. Like when you're hiding parts of your experience that shame can just be so active and when you're actually able to share slowly safely you know testing the waters bits of your own experience with people who actually need it with understanding and compassion then yeah that can be so alleviating of that piece of shame and sometimes like yeah living is painful and there's all kinds of painful experiences that we go through and there's maybe no easy fix for those. But then often on top of that, there's another whole layer of suffering where we're like judging ourselves and thinking we're defective and um, unlovable or unworthy. And it's often that, that layer of pain that, oh yeah, we can, we can work with that. We can soothe that. And that's what, I mean, that's what I'm hoping this book does is just that young people can read the stories of other people and just say, oh, okay, okay. It's not just me. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's someone, there's someone else out there. There's other people out there who are struggling like I am. And it kind of makes sense. 
bring some sense of like understanding and meaning to it can also just like alleviate some of that pain. I'm wondering, I guess, in in doing this research, but also in the work that you do, it's it seems like the conversations we're having around trauma have very much shifted um, to acknowledging people's trauma and also looking at how, you know, we're talking about, you know, trauma-informed practices in a way that we didn't ever before. I've even taken classes on trauma-informed editing, which is like, you know, we're talking about it in that way. So I wondered if if you wanted to talk a little bit about trauma and how how you've seen it in your work, but also how you wanted to approach it in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just so important, like in every aspect of society that we realize more and more how people's experiences, the the impact that those experiences, traumatic experiences actually have on a person. Um, because sometimes I think just even that understanding can ignite so much more compassion for others. And then also when you understand that in terms of your own story, that's like, oh yeah, these, it makes sense how I'm feeling given what I've been through that, that as well can alleviate that layer of um, shame. And, you know, we know that um, more than half of the people who use mental health services as adults, for sure, more than half way, probably way more than half have been abused or neglected or witnessed violence as children not to mention like just all the people who've also experienced other sort of more small t kind of traumas of just um you know um being discriminated against or not having their needs met or having to just struggle without having the emotional connection that they need to really thrive. Um, and I think when, um, when like hospitals and schools and all our different sort of community endeavors bring an understanding of trauma, then we can, um, start understanding more um, why people are the way they are and just bring, yeah, just bring that um, extra level of compassion to it um, help, and helping people understand that they're not broken, they're not to blame, um, that it's not their fault uh, and also that there is a path forward for healing. You know, I think that's that's a really important piece that people need to know that it's not um, trauma doesn't equal a destiny. Um, it is a wound that can be healed. And also that, you know, that we bring in the understanding also that really positive childhood experiences can be a buffer against the effects of trauma. So anytime a kid has a sense of belonging in their family or in their community or their school or has a connection with an adult who's supportive and caring or has a connection to their culture and their language, like those things are just so protective and strengthening. And um, we just need to do more of that stuff. 
Thanks so much to Melanie for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share news about the winners and finalists, as well as information about upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Shana Lambert. Shana's book, Petra, won the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.